16 to 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink and with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Father, we pray that you would enlighten our minds, that, Lord, you would bring us to the place where we are at the edge of our seats, so that our hearts are hungry, so that we might know that it is your voice that we hear and not the voice of a man. Oh, Lord, in Jesus Christ, do your good work among us, O Lord. And knowing that our sins are forgiven, our sins are now confessed. And Lord, we praise you that in Christ there is no condemnation. O God, make us soldiers for Christ, though, and help us to keep our eyes fixed on him the author and finisher of our faith. We lift his name up on high. Now bring him to our hearts in fullness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, every church family ought to have a goal and a reason for existence, don't you think? Well, our reason for existence is God's love in Jesus Christ. And our goal here at SGRC is to learn all that we can about the fullness that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we learn who he is in all of his fullness from God's word, then we will understand that in him we already have the fullness of spiritual life. It's already ours through the empty hand of faith. Jesus is the life. 
And nothing outside of him that we believe or do can add one ounce of spiritual life and vitality to what we already have in the resource of Christ within us. Paul told the believers that at Ephesus that they had been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The Apostle Paul tells believers in verses 9 and 10 of Colossians 2 that in Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And although this is true for every single solitary believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, without exception, without exception, every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ needs to learn how true it is. Learning who Jesus is and who we are in him and what we have in him will not only make us want to please him, but in this context, to help us keep from going down rabbit trails in our Christian lives, as if there was something down those trails more than what Jesus Christ can provide us. Those young in the faith can be, I think, especially vulnerable to these dangerous rabbit trails because people who promote Christ plus a fuller spiritual experience by the things that we do are normally people who are convincing and compelling, likable, and spiritual. Well, on the heels of that, young people, is it possible for someone who says they believe in Jesus Christ, but they truly do not have justifying faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they say that they're a Christian, is it possible for them to be, to appear very spiritual? I think our young people know the answer to that. Can a non-believer talk almost incessantly if you give him or her the chance about spiritual things and be very compelling in doing so? Well, the answer is yes, uh, absolutely. Satan disguises himself as what? An angel of light. And because of that, false teachers and Colossae had a way about them, apparently, that made some in this very young church really feel like they could experience more if they would just follow these teachers and do what they said to do. Emphasis on the do. See why this could be so alluring to a young Christian? 
Have you, have any of you ever heard a young convert passionately go on and on and on really about what he or she plans to do for God or wishes that they could do for God? While I'm glad for the desire, there should be a desire, a new heart brings new desires, but sometimes I seriously get concerned about the possible overemphasis on doing that I think this person could be this quickly reverting back to, I'm going to do for God and I'm going to earn God's favor. Our fallback position as sinners is always legalism. Grace is not natural for us. But what we do as sinners is we are built to achieve. We're built to earn. We're built to do. And if we're not careful, careful as Christians, we can, we can get down a rabbit trail when in fact Jesus alone has earned God's good favor for us and he alone is sufficient for growing up in him. That's why Paul warns in verse 16, don't let anyone pass judgment on you, not one person, don't let them do it. Don't let them pass judgment on you if you're not doing what they say to do. As if, having faith in Christ and being in Christ through faith was not enough. When you have Jesus, you have everything. And then in verse 18, Paul says, don't let, let anyone make you feel like you're disqualified. Well, this is certainly an implication of some of the ways that our enemy works. He brings judgment upon us. You need more than Christ. He can't, he can't take us from out of Christ. You just need more. And wants to get us off track. He wants us, us to uh, take our eyes off of the sufficiency of Christ and onto our supposed goodness and sufficiency. And Paul says, no, 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 wait a second. When you have Christ, you can't be disqualified. Don't let anyone make you feel like you are less than or worse that you are disqualified because Paul says in verse 23, the people who are saying this only appear to have wisdom. They only look like they have wisdom, but what, what do we know about that? Looks can be deceiving. If you are trusting and resting in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done to save you from your sin, don't let anyone make you feel like you are on a lower level somehow. We're all on the same level. And we are lifted up high in the heavenlies. We are seated 
in the heavenlies. In the gospel, there's nothing that we don't already have, and as we grow in Christ, we need to remember that. Up to this point in the letter, Paul has only alluded to the false teaching that the Colossians were facing. But now in verses 16 to 23, he speaks about the false teaching in a more specific and consolidated way. And in so doing, he reveals it for what it really is. Well, he speaks first about food and feasts in verses 16 and 17. Then he speaks about asceticism and angel worship in 18 and 19. Then he talks about rules and regulations in 20 through 23. Well, let's look first then at what he says about food and festivals in verses 16 and 17. Before, Before we get into it, Paul, of course, wrote this letter to the believers at Colossae in their specific context, and they would have understood perfectly what he was referring to when he spoke of food and drink and festivals and new moons and Sabbaths. Some of these things are murky to us today, but it seems to be the case that these teachers were promoting the keeping of certain Old Testament Jewish food laws and feasts along with faith in Christ. That's very helpful to know, I believe, that the Old Testament Jewish calendar was built around what were called Sabbath feasts. These Sabbath feasts were celebrated both monthly and annually. They were days that God had set aside as holy and were celebrated with food and worship. So annual celebrations like the Passover and the monthly celebration of the new moon were Sabbaths set apart by God to be celebrated by his Old Testament people. Paul is saying this. Don't let anyone's judgment of you for not doing these things have any effect on you. These Sabbath feasts and food laws pictured Christ, but now you have Christ. They pointed to Christ, but now he's here. Going back to them, going back to the Sabbath feasts and food laws, doesn't make any biblical sense because the Lord Jesus Christ embodies their fulfillment. I've heard Christians in the broader evangelical church wonder if the word Sabbath here was referring to our weekly rest and worship. It is not. Thankfully, our weekly Christian Sabbath is here to stay. It's here to stay because it is grounded in creation and it is part of God's abiding moral law. 
And as you know, the Christian Sabbath has been moved from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week because added to the rest and worship of the Old Testament Sabbath day is a weekly first day of the week celebration of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the firstborn from the dead, Paul says in, in the letter to the Colossians, to live forevermore. Paul says that, and the first day of the week helps us in our weakness to keep our focus on Christ. As a rule, not to work and not to achieve and not to earn on that day does not come natural. Centers are built to work, to achieve, to earn, and to do. This day is not what Paul is talking about, though, when he uses the word Sabbath in our passage. He is speaking about the Sabbath feast, the monthly new moon feast, and the annual Passover feast, the feast of booths, and so on. All of these festival celebrations were a part not of God's abiding moral law, but a part of the ceremonial law and were shadows that pointed forward to Christ and the redemption that he would earn for us. Certainly, by God's design, these festival celebrations were meaningful to the Old Testament saints, no doubt about it, because they looked forward to the reality of a coming Messiah, a coming Redeemer. But now that the Redeemer had come, these shadows that pointed to the reality were no longer to be observed. Well, years ago, Laurie reminds me, it was back in 2008, I went away for eight weeks of horseshoeing school because I needed a part-time job while I preached here. Right here? Well, I preached there. And Laurie and I made a pact to look at the moon every night that I was away at 10 o'clock. And I thought it was way cool for our eyes to meet on the moon at, eight, at 10 o'clock every night. Well, that's very romantic, isn't it? You don't know the half of it. <laughs> but after I got home from horseshoeing school, if I had gone outside to look at the moon at 10 o'clock, Laurie would have said, what are you doing? I said, well, it's 10 o'clock. I'm looking at the moon. She would then probably have rolled her eyes and said, okay. Don't forget to come in and tell me goodnight when you're done. <clears throat> I didn't need to look at the moon anymore, did I? Because the real thing was with me. Well, that's just a little earthly analogy from the love life of Kent and Laurie. 
now times the significance of that by infinity. Why should believers in the Lord Jesus Christ feel like there is any value anymore in following the Old Testament shadows? Verse 17 says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The substance belongs to Christ. Why celebrate the Passover when Christ is our Passover? The gospel is not a commodity. The gospel is not a commodity that we are given when we believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the gospel. The Bible says he is our propitiation. Grace is not a commodity. Grace is not a commodity that comes to us because of what Jesus did. Jesus is grace. He is the gospel. He is Christianity. He is our redemption. He is our propitiation. And when we, through faith, rest in all that he is, God puts us in the gospel. He puts us in grace. He puts us in our propitiation and our wisdom and our redemption. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the resurrection and the life. He said to Lazarus' sisters, all of the Old Testament shadows pointed to the substance to come, the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then second, Paul turns to asceticism and angel worship in verses 18 and 19. The first thing he says is, don't let anybody disqualify you for not doing those things. Insisting that you have, a lot, uh, have to live a life of asceticism and angel worship for greater spiritual fulfillment as a Christian when you have me the Lord Jesus says through Paul, this is nothing but man-made religion. Now to hear for us here today, treating your body severely and worshiping angels are obviously man-made religions. But we need to realize something. We need to realize that anytime someone comes into the church and doggedly promotes one or two things that are required as a litmus test for being spiritual, it's a danger signal that they are undermining the sufficiency of Christ. Because whatever they are doggedly insisting upon is just an easy way for us and our young people to jump on board with and get spiritual, rather feel spiritual, quick, but it's only the appearance of spirituality. It's a rabbit trail. Somebody was close to the Colossians, one man, one woman, a group of people we don't know, 
And they were telling these dear folks, our brothers and sisters, that if they really wanted to be spiritual, they needed to deny their bodies and to treat them harshly. And I'll bet to those young in the faith and most of the congregation were recent converts that this looked humble. It had the appearance of humility and sincerity. But Paul says in these two verses, that's not the case. They were puffed up. They were just the opposite. And somebody was also saying to the Colossians that a truly spiritual person will worship angels and have angelic visions and share those visions as proof of spirituality. Angel worship was a big deal in the culture of Colossae, but it's also a really big deal in our culture. We have a dear friend, Laurie and I, a dear, dear friend who had, has had several recent homemakers caught up in either the veneration of angels or the veneration of Satan. A lot of mysticism in our culture today. Of course, if you focus on angels, if you focus on denying your body, oh, then you don't have to worry about really your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ at all. Have you ever noticed that whenever anyone adds something to Christ, that that something becomes the most important thing? That's what they live for. That's what they talk about. It's kind of like vegans. You don't have to ask a vegan if they're a vegan. They'll tell you they're a vegan. It's the same with any cult that has their own book, but they also go with the Bible. The Bible becomes secondary. And that's what happens when our young people are faced with compelling people, likable people, people that have a real knack for getting close to people and appearing spiritual and caring. Satan comes as an angel of light. And his work is seen all over our world. You may not know, I may not know anyone who practiced the adoration of angels, but we both probably know someone who practices the adoration of saints. In all of this, whatever form it comes in, a person can look spiritual, he can look and seem humble, but the Apostle Paul says he's just puffed up without reason because of his sensuous mind. Whenever someone, young people, is trying to teach you something in the church, ask yourself this question. What is their focus in their teaching. What is their focus? If these people were puffed up, then they were the ones who were big, and what they were promoting to do, they saw themselves as the championship champions of it. They were big in this picture. What's the focus of the person who 
is teaching. You should always ask that question. Is it themselves? Is it their experiences of doing? Or is the focus Christ? Is it Christ? Also, young people, you can ask, does their teaching biblically edify the body of Christ? Does it cause the church, according to this passage, to cling more closely to its head from whom the whole body is nourished? Whenever we leave and turn away from the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us in the gospel, we turn away from our nourishment. It only comes from the head, and, and, and we can ask, does their teaching biblically edify the body of Christ? What's the focus of their teaching? And who is it building up? These questions are critical to ask because the same Jesus who saved the body of his church is the one who continues to nourish the body in faith and love. That's his commitment, but he calls us to grow in our gratefulness and in our understanding of the scriptures, to, to open our mouths and to drink from him, from the fountain of life. So Paul says, wherever you are on that spectrum, if you're a new convert or if you've been Christian for 60 years, 70 years. Don't, don't let anybody make you feel like you're on a low, lesser level. Don't, 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 don't let anybody make you feel like you're disqualified. Don't do that. That would be, in, in the Apostle Paul's thoughts, crazy. In Jesus Christ, verse 9, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you, through faith alone, have been filled in him. Well, and last of all, Paul tells them not to listen to those who promote rules and regulations as a means of deeper spiritual fulfillment for the Christian. Verses 20 through 23, Paul asks, why do you still follow the principles of the world? Why do you do that? Principles like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Brothers and sisters, for all these things, we have freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. Really, this is just an example of any set of rules that the church prescribes as a litmus test for spirituality. The session should, in whatever church should be called to account for this because it has allowed the focus to come off of Christ and onto other things. Remember, our default setting as sinners is legalism. It's to do, it's to work, it's to achieve, it's to earn. Work is glorious, God gave it to us, but he has set aside a day where 
where he says, I think I mentioned it earlier. I'm captivated by this because the Lord reminded the Israelites two different times after he delivered them from Egyptian slavery. You don't have to work six days a week now. You can trust me. You had to do it as slaves. Think about where you were as slaves. Think about where you were as slaves to sin, working effortlessly, trying to make sure that you were better than the next person, and you can always rationalize that. And then God filled the temple and came to you, and in the presence of a holy God, you saw yourself for what you were. You cried out, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the land of an unclean people. Always remember, young people, that our default setting as sinners is always legalism trying to earn God's acceptance. And then Satan comes along and he accuses us. You just have to know scripture. You have to know the gospel. You have to be able to say, you don't know the half of it, do you? But Jesus Christ has suffered and died. He is my firm foundation. I have no other. He's a firm enough foundation for us, is he not brothers and sisters? Uh, If you go to a bookstore, just pick up a book randomly, a Christian bookstore, pick up up a book randomly at a a Christian bookstore. More than not, it will tell you, it'll give you a three or four point plan uh, that you can follow to achieve a better and more fulfilling Christian life. It will have the appearance of wisdom verse 23, but it won't teach you that Christ has become your wisdom from God, as Paul taught the Corinthians, and your righteousness, and your sanctification, and your redemption. And then he finishes that with, so that no one will have anything to boast about. You know why there's a lot of love in our church family? It's because before Christ, we're all the same. None of us have anything of which to boast. None of us. Our camaraderie is fantastic. And our love for Christ is growing. And what we do does matter. And that's why the Apostle Paul comes to the end of this in a very unique way. By saying... In verse 20, if with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits, or if with Christ you have died to the principles of this world, in other words, man-made religion in all its forms, don't go back to those things. Through Christ's death alone, you were reconciled to God and saved from man-made religion. You were, made, you were saved from self-made religion. And Paul finishes this section of the letter by saying, Old Testament feasts 
and asceticism and angel worship and rule keeping have absolute no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Nothing. It's a facade. It's the appearance of wisdom. But it's an empty shell. The gospel on the last day is going to be an incredible day where the whole part of us, body and soul, reunites. And if we die before that, our souls will be perfected in holiness. Talk about the stopping of the indulgence of the flesh, putting on the brakes like you've never believed. We're in the hard part right now as the church militant. And because it's hard, and because we sin, sometimes we just want to try, 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 and just, you know, and earn God's favor. I want to... And what, and what the Apostle Paul is saying is, for all of us, keep digging into the infinite resources of the gospel treasure of the Lord Jesus Christ. Learn who he is and all that is yours in Jesus Christ. And out of gratefulness, begin to please God. And as you please God, little by little, the indulgence of the flesh will be cut away by the power of the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit. But don't give up. Don't give up. Ever. Because no matter where you are in your Christian journey, no matter who you were prior to Christ, no matter where you are in your Christian journey, you have everything through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, I said earlier that he is the life, didn't I? Eternal life is not a commodity. To put your faith in Jesus Christ is, he is eternal life. And John, in his first epistle, says this, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has the life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have the life. One of my Theology professors used to always say, and that's back in the, in the days when the King James was still largely in vogue, you, you either have him or you don't. Oh, may today be a day where all of us admit that our lips are unclean and it's out of our hearts that we have cursed God. It's out of our hearts that we have been unjustly cruel. And you've called us even to love our enemies for you loved us while we were yet enemies. And hand us Christ. Hand me Christ. Young people, hand me Christ. Hand him to me. Pull out my sin and show me my sin 
and hand me Christ. Because in him is life. He is life. The way, the truth, and the life. The resurrection and the life. Praise be to God. And may our young people be led by our older folks here with a continual study of the gospel, a continual study of God's word, so that we might be discerning and spot a fraud almost immediately. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless the hearts of young and old in this room. For today is the day of salvation. And may we all come humbly, broken because of our sin, but rejoicing because of everything there is in Jesus Christ and the precious gospel. Cause heaven to rejoice as we rejoice, as hearts embrace Jesus by faith. Praise be to God, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to, I don't mean Bibles. You knew I didn't mean Bibles. Let's all stand.